Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. So today we're talking with Cheryl Opperman, and uh, I came to Rocky Mountain National Park and knew I had to get a podcast, so I brought all the podcast equipment and come up over the hill, and there's a bunch of elk, and lo and behold, I see you standing out there, and we haven't seen each other for how long? It's been quite a while. I was I mean, guessing least, six or seven yeah, or eight years. at least. Was it Alaska last time, or... I remember one time it was in a little urban park in Denver. Yes, right. Alaska very well could have happened. I think it might have been Alaska. It's great great to connect again. I know. It's pretty awesome. So tell us, I guess, just let's introduce the audience to you. So what is your biography? What is your, like, elevator speech when you're, or when you're doing workshops, since that's predominantly what you do, how do you... How do you describe yourself and what you do and how you got to where you're at right now? And this doesn't have to be short. I mean, if you oh. want to talk about it for for five minutes, we can, and I'm sure I'll have tons of questions. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I started uh, taking pictures in high school and um, just fell in love with photography. So I, I knew it was something that I wanted to pursue as a career pretty much right away. And um, so I... You know, at that time, I photographed all sorts of different things, but I always loved the outdoors. Uh, I wanted to get an education in photography as well, so I looked into colleges, and I ended up attending Brooks Institute of Photography. Really? Yes, in Santa Barbara, California. Is so, that a thing anymore? You know, they they are not. Uh, they closed several, I several so. years ago. It's really it's it's sad. Um, I think it's sort of a commentary on where photography is today, but. I mean, it was an excellent school. Uh, I got an, a great education. Uh, my degree was in industrial scientific photography, but you know, I took the most technical major I could because I figured I could apply that to anything. Right. And um, you know, I think it's really served me well. But uh, you know, once I once I graduated from Brooks, I had an opportunity to go on an integrated field study into the Australian outback, which was great because I was introduced to a lot of other disciplines that were really cent- centered around nature. And I, I think when I graduated, I was first thinking I would become a travel photographer, because I love to travel. Um, but after I did the integrated field study, that led to an opportunity to work on a book project about uh, the conservation of Africa's wildlife. And so I, I went to East Africa for three weeks and, and photographed. It was a project that was um, put together by a, a travel company, and it incorporated photographs from mostly amateur photographers, actually. And the whole concept of it was uh, how ecotourism can help to to protect wildlife because it gives those local communities an economic incentive to, you know, protect the wildlife instead of kill it. So, you know, I think that really just um, solidified my direction. Right. That's a good project, too. It was. It was a great way to start. I, I learned a lot. But And you had the technical background, because, of course, you went to school, right? Yes. So it wasn't, I mean, technically, you're not an amateur, right? You were a right. pro at that point. Exactly. But a lot of times, that's the only way you're going to get in the wildlife uh, 
wildlife nature world, it's super hard to get established and get going, and let alone to be part of a book project. Right. That is a good way to get started, I think. It, it really is. And, um, you know, I, I, there was one nature class at, at Brooks, and I took that. But otherwise, you know, so much of the curriculum was designed around, you know, more commercial types of photography. Right. And I did, you know, early in, in my career do some commercial photography to pay the bills. Because as you say, it's very difficult to get started in wildlife photography because you have to have a portfolio of images. And right. that takes time. I mean, you can be technically proficient, but there's nothing that replaces time in the field uh, to have those opportunities. Exactly. So so then take us beyond that. When you did the book in East Africa, then you said that was three weeks? Yeah, I spent three weeks in East Africa, and then I worked with the publishing company to help promote the book, okay. which was a great learning experience from a business standpoint. Right. Because, you know, one of the challenges also for, I think, any artist is that you also have to run a business in order to make a living, you know, unless you can get a job, which is very difficult, again, in artistic fields to find right. Right. people that hire you and employ you. Um, you're going to be running your own business. So it was a great opportunity to learn. Then that brought you back to the U.S. Yes. To work on that book, yes, right? Yes, correct. To do all that kind correct. of Correct, yes. And so at that point, is that when you fell in love with wildlife? Is yeah. that the thing where it's like, that, that, that was, was super that, cool? Yeah, that, no, that was what, what did it. I thought, okay, I have to find a way that I can do this full time. So, um, you know, I mean, I was in my early 20s, so right. I, I still had to make enough money to, to pay my bills. Uh, and I ended up assisting for a commercial photographer in Denver, Okay. And, um, you know, I did a lot of uh, a lot of assisting on his jobs, but he would also let me shoot sometimes at events and things. And it, it really, you know, I, I was able to earn some money that way, pay the bills, and I also, you know, got more exposure to running a business. So eventually I, I built up more commercial clients that were my own. I did quite a bit of architectural photography. And... Um, you know, just would work on the wildlife nature whenever I could. And so, you know, gradually just sort of transitioned from the commercial work into gallery exhibits and, you know, selling stock photography. And and in those days, so I'm guessing that was probably, what, the 90s? Yeah. <clears throat> stock was still decent then. Yeah, you could, you, right, you could license images for decent amounts of money. You right. could sell prints. Right. You know, I did a lot of gallery exhibits. So it was much easier to make a living from the actual photographs themselves, right. which that's really changed now. I mean, and you still had to supplement. I would, I would assume, starting out, you know. Oh yes. Because there's no way yes. that you're going to have the. I mean, you look at someone like Art Wolf or Tom Engelson or right. Franz Lanting or any of those guys. I mean, they had quite the library to pull from, that's and exactly. then they had such a diversity. And then if you did have a gallery show or your own gallery, which a lot of them do then you do have a way to make money. But is someone that doesn't have their own gallery and you're out there just starting out, I mean, yeah, you might have, what, maybe five images that are super awesome? Right, right, and exactly. You can't do a gallery show with no. five images. No, you can't. It takes time, which is why the commercial work was such a great bridge for me. It was still photography. Um, so I was in the industry. I was learning about business. And I was just building my nature wildlife portfolio when I could. I, you know, I did some travel assignments too uh, for a travel company. So, you know, I, I, I really had a broad range of things that I was doing. 
and and that's one one thing that was so great about my education is I really felt comfortable doing any type of photography, and it still all applies to nature and wildlife. Right. So, um, you know, it, it worked out. It worked out well. So, then after, I mean, I guess it's not after that. Now you're now you're immersed in it, right? So now yeah. it's just a matter of keep shooting, pay the bills, shoot as much as you can, be out in the woods as every opportunity. Exactly. And then just grow up from there. So how did that go? I mean, because obviously starting out, you're going to be, it's slim pickings, right? Right, it is. So did you ever feel like, or how long was it? Was it 10 years where you felt like, okay, I've I've got the tiger by the tail here. I can probably do this and not have to do as many commercial jobs. Yeah, I, I'd say it was about 10 years, maybe maybe a little bit more than that, but about 10 years to really build up a, a portfolio that I felt was you know, broad enough right. that I could, and, and, and build up enough, you know, clients and things that I could really do that exclusively. So how did that go then? How did you, did you just work with private galleries and then yeah. just have them around the country or did you predominantly yeah, did, stay in Denver or what did you do? I, I did a lot of shows in Denver. Obviously it was a lot easier to do things in Denver. Right. Um, I would do some things in other, in other, uh, states as well. And then, you know, one of the other things that was really helpful to me was entering photo contests. Right. Uh, you know, if you can win or place, you know, in, in the top 10 of some prestigious photo contests, it really does help get your name out there. And that right. opens up a lot of doors. So you're probably talking about the BBC Wildlife Photography so, Year. So Nature's Best Nature's Photography, Best. National Wildlife Federation, won yep. some awards for them. Yeah. Um, so and so. it's those kind of contests. I mean, those, yeah, can, yeah, right. You can do the contest at your local camera club, which I think is a big. It's a good thing to do that too, right? Right. Because you get all the critiques, and you just you know, it just helps because yes. it's just that back and forth, and you just get better. Yes. But to build a name for yourself, we're talking these pretty high echelon camera or uh, photo competitions. That yes. I mean, you've got to have a stellar image, or it's just going to fall through the cracks. That's exactly right, and and you know they. Nature's Best, of course, had the display space at the Smithsonian Natural right. History Museum. So, you know, I had, I was in the Natural History Museum four times with images through the Nature's Best contests, and so those images are seen by literally millions of people. Right. And and it's great exposure. So it it help, really helps get your name out. So after that, so we're let's say it takes us to the early two thousand. So then what? Are you, you know, you starting to see a change or was it good through like the first 10 years in 2000? Was it still pretty good for the gallery stuff or did, when did you start seeing a change? Well, um, that's, that's a little tricky. Mm -hmm. Um, I think partially, I, I think it did start to change in the, you know, early 2000s. Unfortunately, one of the things that, that happened in my personal life was that my dad got cancer oh, okay. um, in the early 2000s, and I took some time off to take care of him, Right. and so uh, he did pass away from it, but I was really grateful that I was able to, to do that for him, to, and have to the care for him, to yeah, it, right? to have the flexibility. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have a family, I was single, um, so it... You know, it, it it just, it was something that was, was possible for me at that time. And so I think that probably while I was taking care of him, 
some changes were happening in the industry that I wasn't as tuned into. Right. Um, because definitely when I came, you know, out of that experience, it had changed. I had noticed a, a decline. Now, not to the extent that we have today. I mean, today I think it's, you know, really dr dramatic. And, and today I'm really doing a lot more workshops and photo tours. Right. But, um, you know, there was definitely a difference. So we'll get into that a little bit later with the workshops because I think, yeah. I mean, being able to do the workshops is pretty awesome. And, and be able to go with someone like yourself who's had all the experience, I mean, that's who you want to be with on a workshop. You know, that experience or that, if you're spending that kind of money going to a workshop, you want to go with someone that knows what they're yeah, going on. I, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that that transition then. So from, was it, did you always have a gallery that was like your thing and it always had an income coming in or did you just see it just fall right off and then and then you just had to kind of reinvent yourself? It, it was somewhat gradual because I, you know, I would I, I would sell through galleries, but I, w I would also sell to people who would contact me directly. So, you know, it would it would just sort of it sort of gradually gradually fell off. Which um, that was kind of the heyday of the web, right? So, yeah. did how did did you do a lot of web store web gallery and you do a lot of web sales? And did that work out well or I didn't do a lot of web stuff. I mean, I did have a, you know, a website and a web presence, but I I really felt like um you know, doing the exhibitions in public places, like I would do things at the Buell Theater, for example. Right. I had some images at DIA for a while. I mean, those things really get you the exposure that allow people to contact you. And I think it's, it's also helpful when you can do gallery openings because they meet you in person. And they might not buy something that night, but uh, they might, you know, call you in a year or two. In fact, I had one, one woman um, who had seen one of my images in a calendar that I had sold a stock image to. And uh, she had contacted me, and it was just out of her price range. And two or three years later, she contacted me again and said, you know what, I've saved the money for that, and I want, I'm so excited to get this print now. That's awesome. So, you know, there, there are things like that that, that uh, would come up later on. So you, you just never know where things are going to lead. I think, you know, the more you can, can be out there showing your work and talking to people, um, and the more you can publish... Right. Uh, the more people see it, and and they will find you. And so, two things out of that. Um, and the other thing, I I have done a few gallery shows, and there was no better time than at the gallery when the energy's there yes. and people are excited, and you know, and people that may have the money right there that ex you still have to sell them, right? You, you do. And if you can tell the story behind the image, or if yes. you can have that personal experience in person. That's going to close the deal. A lot of times, if they see it on the web, they don't have that story. They don't That's have right. that connection with you. Yes. So I'm sure you probably did pretty good at the shows, too, in addition to the people that would save up right. three years later. Right. How did that go? I mean, did you always find that that was the case? I, I think I think anything in person is better right. than, you know, virtually or, or just seeing an image. Although, you know, I mean, images are very powerful. Right. So if somebody connects with your image and they want to buy a print, to me that that is such a strong ind indication that you did your job well. Right. But I do think it helps for people to meet you and, and feel like they have a connection with you personally and that they know the story uh, behind the image. So, you know, one of the things I've always done 
during my exhibits as well is is do caption cards that maybe tell a story or tell something about the image because if I'm not there it gives them a way to connect with me right you know through my words and while you know pictures are worth a thousand words right sometimes it it does help to add a oh, little bit sure. of information I mean you can't you know they they tell a story but they don't tell the whole story either I like to think that over the a career of a photographer you develop these iconic images right so and yes. and every photographer has them and I guess depending on how long you've been doing it depends on how many you have right right so i I think I might have let's just say between ten and thirty that uh-huh. I feel are like those iconic images that it's taken twenty some odd years to get yes, right right and behind every one of those is a story That's and right. I don't feel like I can i mean yeah, the pictures are really cool, and I think it'll stop people in their tracks. But there's usually just a really awesome story that goes along with that image, and it's it's so much fun to be able to tell the whole story. And then people, you, they just have that background, and it just that's another good way to to sell the image. Right. I mean, that is the way to sell the image. I right. Guess. Right. Well, because you know, especially people who don't um, go out and take pictures of nature. Uh, the people who are just interested in coming to gallery exhibits and appreciate the art of nature photography, but that don't participate in it actively, you know, they don't really know what we go through to capture these images. Right. I mean, you know, I think sometimes um, some people think you just go out and, and, you know, click the button and it's that simple. And uh, so it, it's nice to be able to explain, you know, what you actually have to go through to capture these really unique situations. Right. Yeah, and you're exactly right. I mean, in a national park, it's oftentimes, it's easy. Yes. So people get them that idea that, oh, well, I can just drive, I can roll up, yes. I can wake up at like eight. <laughs> yes. And then I'm just going to roll into the park here and then, you know, there might be a, a moose or a elk or whatever. And I'm just going to take a cool picture and then we're going to go on our merry way. And if, if so, some people are super lucky where you got foggy morning and you got, all the elements that do make a really awesome image, and they're like, oh, this is a piece of cake, when in reality, to get 10 or 20 or 30 iconic images takes a career. It does take a career. Yeah, you build it over time. I mean, you know, you you have to have the technical skills, but then you have to also have some luck. I mean, there's an element of luck involved in this. You have to understand wildlife behavior. Uh, you, You know, there's a lot you have to learn to be able to do this successfully. Yeah, I've always, I, we talk about that a lot. I, I feel like it's 50-50 sometimes because it's 50% luck. But you're not going to have that luck unless you're there, right? Right. So you have to be there. So that's not luck. You just knew the spot. And then you have to have that technical ability, like you're saying. You have to have the wildlife uh, behavior kind of like analysis or, you know, you have to be able to predict. Hey, I you think do. this might happen. Yes. You know, this this thing's going down. Oh, look, there's a moose right there. Oh, yeah. There's a moose and a calf. Oh, there is. That's wonderful. So y'all are probably hearing some wind in the microphone, and that's because we're just sitting out in the middle of nowhere in Rocky Mountain National Park, and I just looked over our shoulder, and there's a a cow and a calf moose probably, what, 150 yards away from us? Yeah. But, yeah, there's all those little elements that create the 50% that is the hard work. Right. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's 80-20. I don't know what it is. But luck, definitely, you know, to get the weather right. That's right. To get this light right yes to have you know you might have the everything you might have the weather you might have the light but the animal is just never going to lift his head up that's exactly right or something happens a 
you know, you know, if you're in Alaska and you're trying to shoot a moose and a wolf shows up, well, guess what? That shoot's done. That's right. Right? Or That's a bear right. or whatever. That's right. You bet. Or another person shows up. That's true, too. So, I mean, I think you have to be there and you have to have all those other elements to get that awesome image. But a lot of it is luck, for sure. There is. There's definitely an element of luck, so... How have you evolved since the... I mean, you probably still do gallery stuff, don't you? I do. I do once in a while, yeah. Not not nearly as much as I used to. But I think it's still nice to show your work. And it's yeah. important to do that. Um, even if you're teaching workshops, it's still important to photograph. It's still important to show your work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely. And then now, it's awesome, right? Because now we've gone from... You started when I started, and it was all film. I know. And now we're yeah. all digital. And now yeah. it's just so awesome to it, have digital to... Isn't it though? I I really enjoy digital. I mean, I I you know I enjoyed taking pictures on film too, and there was you know there were some very nice things about film, but I, I think there's so much more you can do with digital. Right. Well, and just the latitude. We oh, have, the latitude you know. is amazing. Yeah. The just I look at images now that you'll see on Instagram, and you're like, holy, there's no way. There's just no chance you could have got that oh. 15 years ago. No, it was impossible. It was impossible. It was. In fact, I mean, you know, I've got I've got a lot of slides that I never scanned, and, and I sort of look at them now and say, oh, you know, it's pro- probably not even worth doing it. Um, I'm in the same boat, and know. I can't bring myself to throw them away. No, I wouldn't throw them away. I mean, they're I part of history. You, so, yeah, and yeah. you would think, you know, I, I at one point in my life, I was going to garage sales and just buying old black and white prints. Yeah. Just because I enjoyed photographs, yes. and I enjoyed seeing the history. I didn't care who took them. I didn't know who these people are in them, or whether it was wildlife or people or whatever. Right. I just liked something about it. So hopefully someday our transparencies will turn into something like that for somebody else. I, I would hope so. I mean, you know, going back to a little bit of my family history, my great-grandfather was actually a portrait photographer. Oh, really? So I've been going through, you know, boxes and things over the years, and I came across some of his old, you know, negatives. Of people, I you know, I have no idea who they are, but it's fascinating. Right. So you know, I'm I'm hoping someday, yeah, uh, you know, a future relative or someone else might do the same thing with my slides. And you never know, right? Or you know, you've been in the Smithsonian so much, maybe all those images will end up in the Smithsonian. <laughs> well, all those slides will dedicate a filing cabinet to. I, I, yeah. <laughs> there are there are a lot of people who've been in the Smithsonian, so no, you I know, don't. yeah, but, but um, um, so that does. I guess let's go forward a little bit beyond that. So as you transition into digital, the whole landscape is changing. You, you're still doing gallery stuff. Mm-hmm. At what point did you pick up the workshops? Um, I started, you know, it was sort of a mix, right? As as the, the other avenues of revenue started going down, I started doing some smaller types of things. Um, and how did know, that happen? To, uh, you know, I, would, I, I sometimes would coordinate with a friend or a colleague, and we would do a short you know, workshop together. Um, occasionally I would do like a private workshop where somebody would want me to teach them privately. So it just sort of gradually happened over time. And I, I would say, um, you know, in the last six or seven years, I've really been doing it, you know, as the primary source of my income. Right. So, but, um, you know, it, it just kind of, gradually I've gradually worked into it I mean it just was sort of a natural progression because you know I think the writing was on the wall that 
with the internet opening up, which is a wonderful thing in many ways. I mean, we're able to share so much more with, with the entire world, but it also made the value of an image from a sales standpoint go down because it's just supply and demand. Right. Right. Except so. for those iconic images. Right. right. Those are the ones. But then those are the ones that I'm like, I won't put on the internet. Right, I know. Because it's like, I've got this stellar work that I yes. know is awesome, but I don't, I, I feel like it goes out and then all of a sudden, you know, people, I, so recently I put up a video and it's really old and this is the reason I put it up. It was shot on SD. Uh-huh. It was, I probably shot it and I was trying to figure that out. Probably the late 90s. Okay. And it was a bear picking up a cone. Oh, wow. A traffic cone? Yeah. And um, actually, the story goes that the bear, there were two bears, and it was in Denali National Park, and I'm I'm filming these two bears walking down this hillside, and I could tell they were coming to the road. Yeah. Well, at that point, I stopped filming, right? Because sure. Because who wants to have a picture of a bear on a road? <laughs> or right. video of a bear exactly, on Exactly, right. Right? So I stopped filming, and every, but everything's set up. And these, this first bear comes down off the hills, off the little road cut, and then goes onto the road and walks by this traffic cone and knocks it over. Oh, wow. Smacks it over. Just like, I am just the troublemaker, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, dang, that was, that would have been cool to get that. So, But this other bear is behind it. So I thought, well, I'll just see. I'm going to go ahead and roll on this because I bet you he'll do the same thing or he or she or whatever it was. Knock it further or whatever. That bear came by and actually stood it back up. Wow. And actually nudges it over just a little bit. Like he wants to make the perfect little placement. How interesting. It was. It was super. It, so had I been rolling on the first one when it knocked yes. it over and then the second one when it picked up, it would have been amazing. But the reason I bring that up is we, so it was super old. I decided, okay, I'm just going to throw it on my Instagram account. And I did. And within a day, that thing had like, millions of views all oh, over the internet wow. because people just took it right fortunately i put my copyright on it yeah but i've even seen it on sites where someone that took the time to go out and take take off my copyright. oh that's yeah that, you know i mean i when i post something on social media i really don't mind if someone shares it through the social me- media you know um sharing the protocol. button or right exactly right. but you know obviously um, it's upsetting when somebody takes your copyright off and tries to either claim it as their own or right. sell it or print it or whatever. So, and I and I think that is a that is a problem. It um, yeah, and that's why you don't see these super yeah. super iconic images. But then I look at some other people that are putting up their iconic images. Yeah, and I know for a fact it is generating work for them. So it it does. I mean, I you know, and I do put up some of my iconic images. Um, you know, because it does, it definitely helps with the, the workshop. Definitely. Well, and it's, it speaks to your talent, right? It speaks right. to, it's like, she took that picture, I'm, you know, if she can get that, then I'm hoping that she can help me get that exactly. at that location or at that, with that particular species of animal, whatever it was. Exactly. Yeah. But I do, I hold back some images too that I just, you know really don't want to disseminate out there so i do too i mean it's I'm, just a yeah i i think i it's, struggle with it. i do too because i i do want to you know i want to share the work but the theft you know it, it's very personal when somebody steals your image actually oh, right? i mean it really feels like a violation right so, so i yeah let me finish the story on that just yeah. for people's knowledge so since that video went so viral yes 
I had, I don't know, probably 10 different, I don't even know what you call them, like content aggregators call me and say, hey, we want to license your video. And I, and I didn't know anything about it. I never really explored that kind of stuff for viral stuff. And really, I think I have a pretty good selection of viral stuff, but I've never put it on the internet other than that one. So I had no experience with this. Well, 10 of them had called me, and then I'm like, oh, great, what do I do now? But since it was sold, and they were like, oh, we'll just pay you for every time it runs, and we'll sell it, and we'll police it on the internet. Oh, it. wow. So I was like, huh, this would be a good experiment. Because yes. I don't care if I make any money on it. Right. I just wanted to see what this whole thing worked, how, how it all worked. As it turns out, I basically had to sign over all my rights to that to that company. And I was like, okay, it's old. Yeah. You know, I probably wouldn't do that with something new that I'm shooting current in 8K or whatever. I you just bet. wouldn't do it. Right. But since this, everything lined up. To, to try it out with this one. What happened was, is they got the rights, and then they did start policing. It was crazy. They There were takedown notices going all over the place. And I was getting emails personally from people that had it, their Instagram account was shut off. Different wow. things were going on. And they're like, can you, I'm sorry I stole your thing, or I'm sorry I used it without permission. Um, can you please just let Instagram know that it's, you know, I will never do that. I mean, it was crazy. Wow. I was getting the emails from all over the world where people are saying, I just got this. And I was, I just responded by, you know, you got to talk to this particular company because they're the ones that shut it down. I didn't shut it down. Boy, that's great. So there are those tools out there, but I don't think it's, it's not something you and I could do individually. No. We don't have the power or the knowledge. I don't have the knowledge right, to right. know how to even pursue that. I think that's the challenge, isn't it? To to just find the images that are being used without authorization and yeah, and then tracking everybody down. I mean, that's a job in itself. So so I have a friend that was a, she's a photographer and she she's commercial. She shoots a lot of architecture, and something happened. She broke her leg or she did something where she was laid up for like three or four months. So. Rather than just sit around and do nothing, she started getting on the internet and started looking for all of her work that had been stolen by other people. Oh, like, wow. she would go shoot it for an architect, but then another architect in back east or in Canada or in England would take that image and use it on their website as though oh. that was a reference to some of the work that they'd sure. done. Sure. She started sending out copyright violation letters and basically just saying, okay, this is how much you owe me. Mm-hmm. And she made more money doing that that year than she did anything else. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. She made a ton of money. Just uh, And now she's very... And then she became a very um, proficient champion of the copyright laws. Yeah. And that's actually how I, how I learned how to copyright images through the, uh, through the proper process. Yes, and, the registration. Yeah. Yeah, and, right. And that is important to do. I don't. I don't think very many people do that. And in fact, I've slacked off. I've I've slacked off on it too. And it's it's bitten me because there there have been images that have been stolen that I didn't have registered. And it's it's so much more difficult to pursue a resolution. After. Yeah, if you don't have it registered. Yep. You know, at the same time, I don't really want to spend my life, you know, going after everybody either. Right. right. Um, is it that, worth it? that has infringed. And and I do think it's also important to note that I think we need more education about copyright law, right. especially for the general public. I mean, if a, a company is infringing on your copyright, they probably know better. But there are a lot of individuals that infringe on our copyrights, and I don't think they really understand the copyright law. Right. You know, they don't understand that that's how we make our living and that if they, you know, print our picture off, 
the internet for their wall, that that's a sale that we could have made that, you know. Right. And the reason they should pay for it is, okay, we, we have thousands of dollars wrapped up in our gear. We have thousands of dollars wrapped up in trips that we take to go find the animals. And we have thousands of dollars of worth of our time that we're out there getting that. So it's not like we're asking for something for nothing. That's right. We are out there spending a lot of money to try to make this all work. Exactly. So exactly. that's the reasoning behind And that's the education, right? That's, that's the part right. that people need to understand. Yeah. But then the flip side of that is, is you go to Instagram or you go to Facebook or you go to any of these social media sites and you read the fine print. I know. You know, a lot of them are like, well, the minute you put it up here, it becomes public domain. And I know. You or I are not going to fight Facebook. No, we're you not. You don't stand a chance. We're not. Um, you might get an organization like ASMP or NAMPA or someone like that that would stand up on your behalf. And I guess if it's important enough to you, you could try it. But I still don't have high hopes for a resolution in your favor Right. if you do that. So right. you know, what, you, that's why that kind of goes back to, do I really want to put all those iconic I, It It does, and it's a very difficult decision, decision to make. It is. Um, I think, you know, I think that if we can educate more and, and appeal to people's just, you know, ethical principles. Right. You know, um, I, you know, I want to start a hashtag, maybe we can start it today, called Just Ask the Artist. Oh, that'd be a good one. You know, really, just ask the artist. If you want to do something with someone's work, send them an email. Right. You know, call them on the phone and say, here's what I'd like to do. You know, there are licenses that we can give out for a very reasonable amount of money, too. It doesn't right. mean it's hundreds or thousands of dollars. You know, even prints. I mean, I have prints that are less expensive than other types of prints. So, right. uh, you know, there's a way to be fair to the artist um, and still get what you want. So, Right. Agreed. Yeah, let's try it. Okay, let's do it. Let's see what it is. Let's and do then it. What we'll have to do is on your website, you'll have to put your web address slash just ask the artist. Yes. That way people can read about what that actually yes. is. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And know what that yeah, is. and we can we can start some education today. Yeah. I think that'd be great. Yeah. And then everybody everybody should start doing that. And yes. You know, I talked to a lot of photographers. In fact Jason, one of the co hosts on this podcast, he's put up some of his iconic images and they've resulted in sales. You know, so it sure. is a good thing. You know? Sure. He he's like, you know, he he leans on that side of it of the fence where he's like, yeah, it's totally worth putting it out there because I've gotten sales because of it. But he, he told me just the other day that uh, a magazine wanted to use an image and they asked him specifically, has this been on the internet? And he said, yes. He said, and they were like, no, we can't use it. Oh, wow. So they have the standard of Interesting. it's got to be never seen before. And I've had that happen before with covers yes. where someone will ask me, yeah, I was on a cover eight years ago. And I'm to me, I'm like, who's going to remember eight years ago? But they're like, no, we won't use it. Right. You know, it's just that thing. Right. So, um, I don't know. There's no easy answers. No, there there really aren't. And we're just sorting our way through this. So, <laughs> and we all continue to make it. So, you know, that's right. I'm not I'm not complaining. I'm just uh, stating everything that's going on out there. Definitely. So, tell us now about your workshops because if somebody sure. wants to go take a, a workshop, what just describe what your typical workshop would be. If it's some, let's just say it's something that's achievable for, you know, like you could do trips to Antarctica, which I'm sure fairly yes. expensive, require a lot of travel. Yes. So those are, of course, going to be in the higher price range. But let's say there's something in the lower 48 that is attainable. Just kind of give us a description of what that would be. Sure. And I, and I do 
I, I take a couple of different approaches to my workshops and, and, and trips. You know, some of the trips like Antarctica, while I do instruction in the field, there's not as much of an opportunity for classroom work. So, so a lot of the trips are more photo tours where I help instruct in the field. But I also teach workshops uh, for organizations, and, and I do some on my own as well, where I really have in-depth classroom sessions that um, go along with the in-field photography. And so, for instance, um, I'm doing one coming up for Denver Audubon. It's a raptor photography workshop. And we work with a, a local uh, raptor education organization, oh, cool. which is really cool because when you're learning photography, you know, you, you do need to learn how to read wildlife and, and you don't want to be scaring it away. I mean, I, you know, I see a lot of people in the field that just don't have the experience yet uh, in knowing how to, you know, position themselves so that they won't, you know, disturb an animal. Right. And so by working with the education organization, these birds can't be released back into the wild. They've been injured or imprinted. And so it gives us an opportunity to photograph them up close and practice their skills, their settings, and also learn more about the behavior and what to watch for if you're going to go out and photograph these birds in the wild. And we pair that, you know, the photo experiences with uh, classroom sessions where I really dive into the technical aspects of photography and what you need to know to capture great images of, of raptors, which also applies to other types of wildlife, of course. But, right. No, yeah. that's awesome. That's So that would be, so do you find that that kind of a workshop is more for a local, like if that's in Denver with the Audubon Society in Denver, then that would be more of a local participant? It can be local, but we've, we've had people come from out of state as well. Oh, so, that's cool. um, you know, this year obviously is a little different with COVID and we are still planning on working uh, running this year's workshop with social distancing and masks and all of those things. But, um, you know, I also teach for the Crane Trust in Nebraska for the Sandhill Crane Migration. And it's a similar type of program where we go out into the blinds in the morning and evening to photograph and then have classes during the day. We also offer the Crane Trust just photo tours where we don't have the classes during the middle of the day, but we go out to the blinds in the morning and evening to photograph the migration. So that offers, you know, people who don't feel like they need the instruction the same kind of access to the blinds. Because, you know, there are, while, you know, we're in a national park now and the, the wildlife's very habituated, but when you go to a place like Nebraska where the, the birds are not habituated to humans, you know, in order to photograph them without disturbing them, you have to conceal yourself in a blind. Right. And uh, so... You know, that requires access to private land. And, and so I've established that relationship with them. And it's great because it also supports the good work that they do to help preserve habitat that will ensure that this migration can come through Nebraska for hopefully many generations to come. Right. So, right. And, and that's such an important part of, I think, also being a nature wildlife photographer is contributing to protection and conservation. Because if we don't conserve the land that we have and, and do things to protect you know, these animals, we're not going to have them in the future. No, so especially I, as yeah. that population continues to grow, Yes, right? our human population, yeah. yes, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, we really do. We've got to protect habitat, and, and we've got to do things that are going to give the animals what they need to survive as well. 
just the yeah, and just that conservation education. Yes, it's just it's so it, it's needed for sure. It's very needed, and so I'd like to partner when I can with not for profits who who do focus on wildlife education or conservation, and it's a nice way to you know I still can make a living, but I can also support what I care about. Right. So then, how is the let's talk about a workshop that you would do that would be um, an extravagant workshop, sure. something that's Alaska or Antarctica, Africa, or Africa yes, or right. Which I'm, which I'm, I'm leading trips now to Tanzania, Africa. That's um, awesome. Which is a, a lot of fun. Um, so, which one? Which what's your what's your favorite one? My my favorite destination. Yeah. Oh wow, that's that's everybody always asks that question, and it's such a difficult one to answer because every place is unique. Yes. You know, I do, I don't really have a favorite. I. I Every place I've been, there's something special about it, right. and I value it. So, yep. yeah. yeah, I mean, I, there are places I I, I want to go that I you know haven't been yet. I mean, I haven't photographed polar bears yet, for example. That's something I really want to do. Um, you know, especially given that they're in peril. So, right. So right. I would like to, to have yeah. that opportunity. And that's an expensive one. It is. It is. But I, you know, I'm so I'm leading trips to Antarctica as well, and and. Um, that's a great place. I went there probably at least 10 years ago. I'd have to go back and look at the exact date, but it's an amazing, amazing experience if you can do it. It's worth saving the money to do. I agree, um, 100%. Yeah. That, you know, when people ask me, what's that one place that you want to go back to, that's my answer. Antarctica. Yeah. yeah. It, it is special. Every time. Yeah, it really is. So I, I'm going to be, well, you know, I, it's so difficult with COVID right now because it's pretty much shut down the the traveling part of workshops. I right. mean, like I said, we're going to try and do this workshop if it's if it's safe at that time, assuming we don't have a resurgence with social distancing and everything. But um, it's very difficult to plan a trip right now out of the country, even to other states. I mean, you know, as you know, if you go to like Alaska, let's say right now, you either have to go with a negative COVID test or you have to quarantine for 14 days when you get there. Well, that that's pretty much somebody's whole vacation. So it makes it very difficult to plan any sort of trip right now. Yeah. Yeah. I was we're talking with a bunch of my buddies up in Alaska that do tours and they were like, you know, our summer's basically done. Yeah. You know, it's still going on. You can still make it happen, but it's for the people that have a month. Right. With that quarantine. Time. Right. That's exactly right. So for an Antarctica trip, then how does that go down? Do you Obviously, you advertise it, you fill the trip, and then how many how many participants on a trip like that? So I so I partner because obviously it's very difficult to to um, you know book an entire ship. So I partner with a travel company, and they give me a certain number of spaces on the ship. It's a hundred passenger ship, yep. um, which is nice because if you get much bigger than that, uh, you cannot land everybody at the same time. And, you know, if you're there to take pictures, you want to be sure that you're on a, a ship where they can land. Daily. Daily, yes, and spend as much time in the field as possible. So, so by landing, explain that. Oh, I, some I, people right. Some people that. right wouldn't understand. So you go down basically on, on icebreakers uh, to get to get to the peninsula. So and then explain you, that, though. So, so, so you an go ice, down. Right. So, so say, you, start where you start out from. You bet. So you usually fly to South America, the, the southernmost part of South America. Ushuaia. Ushuaia, typically. Or some trips go out of the Falkland Islands. So so my trips are actually going out of the Falkland Islands. Okay. So you take a flight over 
uh, to the Falkland Islands and then and then board the ship. And, and you know, I think everybody's aware of what a cruise ship is like. Well, uh, you know, an icebreaker is, is really a more industrial type of ship. It's, it's, you know, it's comfortable but not luxurious by any right. means. It's designed to get through the ice. And so they're smaller ships, much, much smaller than um, a cruise ship, of course. And they, they can hold, there are some that, that I believe hold maybe 200 passengers, but um, I like to, again, be below 100 passengers. You know, you can also, you can take cruise ships to uh, Antarctica now, but if you have 500 or more passengers, they cannot land at all, which means you cannot go and step foot on the continent. Right. So when you're, when you're on the ship, you, you obviously have to, to sail uh, to get to the peninsula, and then you take Zodiacs, which are basically big rubber rafts, and you load from the icebreaker onto the Zodiac, and then they take you to the shore, and you can then spend some time walking around and taking pictures. And, and depending on the trip you choose, you know, it's really important to look for uh, a photo trip where they spend as much time as possible on land, because you're going to want to obviously be photographing you know, close to the penguin colonies and that sort of thing. Now, when you say land on shore, the first time I ever, the first time I ever went, I'm thinking, okay, I need to have my snow boots. And I need to have a 40 degree below zero survival suit. Yes. And I need to have, <laughs> right. you know, all this stuff. And it's like, okay, how am I, I'm going to look like the Michelin man. How am I going to take any pictures, right? Yes. So explain what that means when they actually get to land. Well, I, you know, I think I think that that brings up a good point. You know, and and the climate is very unpredictable these days. So I hate to make too many predictions about weather because it's it changes so much. But really, Antarctica is really no worse. In Antarctica in the summer, when summer. when the tourist ships go, is really no worse than a Colorado winter. Yeah. So you know, if you if you wear things for the kind of the coldest Colorado winter and have layers, you're going to be fine. In fact. I think this summer they had temperatures that were quite high in Antarctica, so um, you might not have even needed a parka for that. So uh, depending on when you go, if you go early in the season, you're probably going to have more snow on the ground. If you go in the middle of the season, it could be quite warm. And, and there were days when, when I didn't need my parka at all. I just was wearing my fleece right. and walking around. But generally, um, you know, it's not it's not developed at all so you're you know you're landing on a beach or a rocky area to to just get off off of the zodiac and i like to wear muck boots which are big rubber boots that are like insulated knee high they're knee high, high yeah knee high um yeah calf high i guess would be more accurate uh that are insulated so they're warm and um you know, that way they can you can step in the water if you need to. Which sometimes you do when you get out of the Zodiac, Which right? you do, yeah. I mean, not deep water, but, right. you know, a few inches of water. And so you can do that. And then they're nice to walk around in. I mean, mine are comfortable enough that I can hike. And you're not typically hiking really far distances. Right. You know, the colonies are very, very close to the shore, so. And they're not scared of people. No, It's not, not like they're acclimated to people. They just don't recognize people as... The threat. They don't at all. And they're actually, penguins are very curious. So they do have distance regulations in Antarctica. And it changes a little bit from year to year. I think actually when I went the first time, it was a little further away than it is now. But sometimes it's hard to even keep that distance because the penguins are coming up to you. Right. And there are so many of them. 
So, you know, like you can go get away. No, you can't get away. So again, you know, that's where, where I think again, learning to watch wildlife behavior and just, you know, making sure that you're not doing anything to disturb them. I think it's a different thing when an animal's approaching you. When you say land on a beach, that is oftentimes it's a gravel beach. Yes. It could be. I never once landed on snow. We went in late summer, you know, so it was right. plenty warm, no snow. Right. There was actually grass growing on one beach that we landed on. Uh, yes. So yes. D- when you think of Antarctica, I know that my first impression was, oh my gosh, if we're going to be Shackleton. Right. <laughs> we need to well, prepare. hopefully not quite. <laughs> yeah, not quite yeah, right. Shackleton. Not quite Shackleton. I am yes. going to be so prepared. And then you get there and it's like, well, this is no, it's exactly it's, right. Yeah, it's, no different than oh. a warm, call, well, not even warm. Let's say a mediocre Colorado winter yes. day. Yes, exactly. So. Exactly. Now, if you go, now my trips that I'm, I'm going to be going on are a little earlier in the season. So I would expect there would be more snow. Right. But so again, a little bit colder. Yeah, a little bit colder. Uh, more snow, but I, I think that's going to make for nice pictures too. I mean, snow sure. is beautiful. So. You know, if you get a snow, that's what we always look for when we're shooting eagles in Alaska. Is yes. If we can get a snow on the beach and it just lights up the underside uh, of those eagles. I know, isn't that nice? It's it's like a reflector, exactly. a natural reflector. You just It just works. It really does. So um, when I did it, and you just tell me if this is how your trips go, we would we would basically be on shore for the, almost the whole day. So... And right. what they did right. was throughout the night is where we would travel. Yes. So while you're sleeping, the captain of the ship and the tour operator figuring out where the next destination point is. Yes. And you're basically just floating all night. And when you wake up, you're at a whole new location, whether exactly. it's an iceberg uh, graveyard or it's a place where there's tons of seals or you got something special about penguins or this is a really good place for whales or whatever right. it was, right? Exactly, exactly. And and in addition to, to actually landing on the peninsula, you can do zodiac cruising as well, which is a great way to photograph. So you're photographing from the zodiacs and you can float right up to icebergs that have penguins on them or you can, you know, photograph the whales that are breaching out of the water. And seals. I had l- luck seals, with seals. Yes, and too. seals. Absolutely. So I don't think we ever saw a leopard seal, but you probably have. Yes, I yeah, did. Yeah. Never saw yeah. It. Oh, you didn't? No. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's what makes you want to go back. Right? Oh, you know what? I think you can go to the same location many, many times as a photographer, and you're always going to experience something, something different. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, I guess who this future of what we're doing now yeah. is kind of. Who knows? I mean, I think we'll eventually return back to somewhat normalcy. I think things will be changed forever, but um, until it's just going to be a weird transition right now, right, to get back to somewhat normal. You know, I think I think it is going to be a very difficult transition for a while, but I also think people are really anxious to travel. I mean, I, when I'm looking into 2022, I'm getting a lot of interest for trips in 2022. Okay. I think 2021 is is especially the first part of the year. Um, until we have a vaccine, I think people are very hesitant about signing up for things. Now, you know, I'm going to run, I'm going to offer some trips, but again, make them very flexible. If they can't go in early 2021, then we'll just move them to 2022. But I do think people are really, you know, <clears throat> anxious to get back into nature. And yeah. I think that maybe the one thing this will do for us is we'll really appreciate it more. Right. You know, I think the fact that we've had to stay home so much will uh, will make us take it in and and uh, value 
the opportunity to, to be out there more than we did before, not take it for granted. I get that a lot. I mean, I talk to a lot of good friends in, in California, and I've talked to some people in New York, and they're going crazy. I know. And I'm like, you know, I, know. I don't think I've gone crazy. <laughs> I've always found a way to get outside this whole COVID experience thing, whether it's out riding my bike or right. you know, yes. doing a hike or yes. going to Moab or going shooting wild horse, whatever I'm doing, I find a way to do that. But if you live in the major metropolitan area and they've got it locked down, you're pretty much locked down. Yes, so I think tough. you're right. Yeah, it's tough. I think tough. people are going to want to get out there and, and yeah. go do some stuff. Yeah, so. the stay-at-home orders were really difficult because you really, you know, they were did not want you traveling, you know, into the mountains or, or far away from home. They right. really did want you to stay at home and just go to the grocery store. And I think that, you know, that was challenging. And there are states now that are locking down again. Yeah. So hopefully that won't happen here in Colorado. Hopefully we can all wear our masks and control this thing as much as possible. But... It, it is. It's tough. So, you know, I, again, I do think people are, I think they're walking around their neighborhood more. I think they're bike riding and getting outdoors that way. But but there's something about going to a wilderness area that's, you know, different. And, and I think rejuvenates yeah, your soul. It does, doesn't it? Yes. It really, really does. And, I, you know, those of us who are leading workshops would like to get back to work, too. <laughs> I mean, it's... <laughs> It's uh, it's tough on your business, so it really is. I mean, hopefully, <laughs> right? You I mean, you're going like through that. the same thing, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. And I'm doing a lot of, we do a lot of commercial work for video, and and it basically just got shut down. Of course, 100. Yeah, of course. So yeah. and it hasn't come back yet. No, so. and I and I don't think it will for a while. I no. mean, it's it's tough, and there are a lot of businesses that might not survive. Yeah. So I think, I think we still have a lot of the economic. Pains to go through. I'm afraid we do. I really am very concerned about it. But, but you know, at the same time, I'd like to stay positive also, and we will get through this. Yeah. And we'll come out the other side and be stronger and more knowledgeable. Yeah. Yeah. More tolerant. I hope so. Hopefully. Yeah. Right? yeah I really do. I hope so. I hope we can just be kind to one another and right. be kind to the planet. And. Yep. You know. Well. Give everybody an idea of where they can find you on social media. Yeah. And then also, if they are interested in a tour, I'm sure that's probably web-based. What, what right. is, what's that address that they want to go to? And you then bet. anything else that you feel like is good information for people that would be interested in what we've talked about. Sure. Um, so you can visit my website. It's CherylOpperman.com, and that's Cheryl with a C. Uh, so it's relatively easy to find. I would go ahead and spell it out. So should should I spell it out? Yeah, go ahead okay. and spell it out. It's C-H-E-R-Y-L. O P P E R M A N, all one word. dot com, uh, and I list, all, all, you know, most of my workshops I list or, or tours I list on the website. But I do send things out to my mailing list first. So if you join my mailing list, if a trip fills, I won't even put it on the website, obviously. So um, you know, if you're really interested, definitely join the mailing list. It's the best way to get the first, you know, crack at the spots. And then, um, you know, during COVID, I'm going to be just taking wait lists again for trips that I hope to run in early 2021. And if they can go great, and if not, I'll, I'll move them. And, you know, another thing that I'm going to be working on, again, because we're all trying to sort of pivot during this time until we can get back to, to traveling, is I'm going to be working this year with the Colorado Environmental Film Festival on their annual photo contest. Oh, cool. So um, that's a great thing to do while we're all sitting at home is enter some photo contests, you know, especially if you're interested in getting your work out there, getting some exposure. It's a great thing to do. And 
and uh, the Colorado Environmental Film Festival is is a great organization. They they work a lot with filmmakers, but they also are trying to you know support the still photography community as well because we you know also contribute I think to their mission of right. of educating and inspiring people to care about and protect nature. So and that could actually be way more popular even because more people are out there shooting stills than video. I would think. Right. Right. So. So definitely, and I'll have information about that on my website, or you can also go to their website, which is ceff.net. Oh, okay. That's and um, I was their keynote speaker last year and the judge for their contest last year, and so this year I'm going to be helping them organize it, and we're hopefully going to expand it a little bit more and try and awesome. give people more opportunities. So. Well, we'll put all, so everybody knows the art address, and I'll put in the show notes for this episode all your links. Great. What's your Instagram you. link? Uh, Cheryl Opperman. Okay. Yeah, so, so Facebook, there. Cheryl Opperman, most, most everything. Yeah. Okay. Twitter, Twitter I is Opperman Photos, but that's the only one that I okay. think isn't just my name. But really, so. if they go to your website, you probably have links yeah, to all those yeah, right there. Yeah, exactly. And we'll put them in our exactly. show notes, too. How do you keep up with all that stuff? I can barely keep up with Instagram. Well, I'm not the best social media poster, I have to say. And again, you know, part of it, though, is what we discussed before. You know, how much do I really want to put up on right. social media? So right. um, I'm, I'm a little slow to, to, to get to that. I, I prefer, I give a lot of presentations to photo clubs. I would which say, is awesome. Which I, you know, and that's really, I think, how I get the word out. Uh, about my workshops the most. And again, it's that personal connection. People can meet me and talk to me and, you know, tell me what they want to learn and then I can guide them to the, the best trip. And I don't mind phone calls either. I actually love phone calls. Uh, in, in fact, I would encourage you, if you do email me and I don't respond, please follow it up with a phone call because sometimes things do go into the spam folder right? and I miss them or they just disappear in the cloud somewhere. And so if I have not responded, it means I didn't get your email. And just call me, I don't mind at all. Um, if, if you know I don't answer, leave me a voicemail. It's also a cell number, so you can text me too, whatever whatever works. But you know, there's nothing that replaces a conversation either. Oh, I hate emails, I try yeah, to call I, everybody. I know, I know, because you, you, you know, people misinterpret things all the time in emails, <laughs> you know? There's no inflection and right. you can't clarify anything and so. So I, I don't, you know, it's, it's fast, and, and that's nice, and it, I think it's easy to stay in touch with people through email, but I much prefer talking to people. Oh, I do too. Yeah. I, I feel like my text messages get taken out of context yes. regularly, right. and, I'm like, and a lot of times I'm just short because I just I hate it. <laughs> that's right. That's it's right. not because I'm mad or not because I'm <laughs> disappointed or whatever the situation exactly. is. It's just like, let's just get this done, but... Hey, if you got time for a phone call, I'll talk with you for an hour. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's oh, been awesome. No, thank you. I appreciate it. It was great to see you again. And yeah. We'll have to stay in better touch. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday Nothing's gonna get in our way We will be the biggest band